You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. One of the most remarkable anti-aging strategies starting to emerge is not a tactic. It's not a physical tactic. It's not a food that we eat. It's not a certain exercise. It is actually a mental change. And I was blown away to find out about this on this episode today. So this is going to be something really, really remarkable. It's going to help shift the way you think about aging, but also shifting the way that you're thinking about how you're living your day-to-day life. We're going to be talking with the premier expert in the science of achieving flow states. Have you ever experienced a state of flow in your life? If you're human, you probably have. You might not have noticed, though. Being in a flow state, there are certain ingredients. This can feel like time is actually going a bit slower. This can feel like everything is just happening naturally and effortlessly. And it's not that you're not exerting effort. It's not that you're not doing things. It's just that everything seems to be working with ease and with grace. And funny enough, just last night I was watching with my youngest son, Brayden, who's 11 years old, I was watching The Last Dance, this docu-series on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and their run at their final championship. And it's taken place in that time period as well. They got this really cool documentary style access that they had with cameras following them along for that last championship. But they would flash back into the past several times and help to piece the story together. And this actually came out during the early days of the pandemic. The pandemic went through certain phases as far as the entertainment out there. There was, of course, the Tiger King phase of the pandemic. All right, shout out to Carol Baskins. I think they just found that guy, you know, her her ex-husband or whatever was missing. Why were we watching the Tiger King? What got into us? It's because everything was so novel and new and just we didn't know what was going on. So we were just like, you know what? I'm just going to go with it. All right leotards leopard skin let's do it i'm talking about the the show not what you were wearing if you were wearing that no no disrespect all good but we went through that phase we had the last dance phase it was a good phase because the people banded together demanded espn release this series you've been teasing us with because it was supposed to come out months later but they moved the release date up they know everybody was kind of hunkered down in their homes and they released this really remarkable documentary. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that one of the segments that they showed was Michael Jordan in his second year in the league. This was like around 1985. And he essentially willed this team into the playoffs, sneaking in with a losing record as an eighth seed. And that put them up against the Titans of the time, the Boston Celtics. All right. Now, they've got four Hall of Famers on that team already and this new guy to the league. And you see something unfold that had never been seen before. Michael Jordan hit a state of flow in game one, but especially in that second game of the series where he scores 63 points against one of the greatest teams ever assembled. But they lost the game. And that's part of the story as well. You know, you can have this greatness, this solitary greatness But it's that team dynamic, ultimately, you know, blending those together that led to that dynasty that they formed later. But to see somebody in flow and if you were able to to talk with him even then and him expressing a state where 
you're not really thinking about the moves. You're not thinking about how you're dribbling the ball or how you're going to the rim or, you know, how you're shooting. Any of that. It's all just happening. And to see such a display, and we can display that beauty, that flow in so many different aspects of our lives, whether it's in writing, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in speaking, whether it's in whatever form of play that we might be engaged in or sports or whatever the case might be, there's so many different ways for us to access this flow state. And today, again, you're going to find out how this flow state connects to our longevity and why this might matter more than anything. Now, as you're going to discover, being in a state of flow is a synchronous event with our brains and with our bodies. And so being able to nourish both of these is one of the foundational pieces that makes accessing a flow state easier. If we're in a healthier state physically, and of course mentally, again, we're gonna break all this stuff down in this episode, but today looking for a nutritive thing to help to tip us into the state of flow. This is one of those things that a lot of people are trying to access. This whole category of nootropics has exploded, right? And people looking essentially for a limitless pill. Now, the reality is, again, this is much more psychology and environment state-based than the nutrition stuff that we might do or the exercise stuff that we might do. Again, all of these things can help us to flirt with the zone of flow state, but again, we're gonna unpack what it really means in this episode. But if we're looking to do this with a sense of efficacy and really fueling our brain, and even for this conversation today, my guest was sitting down in this chair across from me, and as I was in my office in the other room, I was downing the most remarkable nootropic that's actually been utilized for thousands of years in documented human history. And I'm talking about a formulation that's based on royal jelly. Now, royal jelly, and this was published in the journal Advanced Biomedical Research, found that royal jelly has the potential to improve our spatial learning, right? So being able to learn and to modulate, to manage what's happening spatially within our environment. It was also found to improve our attention span, all right? Who could use a little bit more attention today? And also was found to directly improve our memory and researchers in Japan found that specifically, royal jelly has the ability to stimulate neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells, specifically in the memory center of the brain, AKA the hippocampus. And again, its use, if we're talking about royal jelly and honey as well, and propolis, the immune factors coming from the hive, we're looking at centuries of documented use. And this is dating back to great thinkers who we even base things around today. If we're talking about systems of medicine and ways of thinking, if we're talking about Hippocrates utilizing these bee products and the ancient Egyptians, you know, having some research dating back all the way again, thousands of years ago, and then having modern day science and the scientific method to affirm its efficacy. But here's the key, as always, you wanna make sure that you're getting it from the right source because regenerative bee farming is so important today. The population of bees have been absolutely demolished because of the way that we're doing farming practices as a society today. And so investing in regenerative beekeeping and also getting your bee products from companies who are doing third-party testing for the common toxicants that are found in most bee products on store shelves. We're talking about heavy metals. We're talking about pesticide residues. We're talking about toxic molds. 
all these things should not be coming along with these remarkable bee products. And so this is why I'm such a huge fan of Beekeepers Naturals. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com forward slash model. You get 20% off their incredible nootropic brain fuel, but also their superfood honey, which is something I have on a regular basis. I absolutely love their superfood honey and so much more. Their propolis spray, amazing, amazing. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S naturals.com forward slash model for 20% off store-wide. Head over there, check them out, support your brain and cognitive health, but also support regenerative beekeeping. And on that note, let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled A True Leader by Donna Debra. I look forward to each inspiring episode that encourages and educates me while living a healthy lifestyle. Sean's podcast rejuvenates me mentally and physically, causing me to think outside of the box. He encourages us to do our own research, and I've realized just as we evolve, our health is also evolving, requiring us to make changes as necessary. Please keep bringing us the science behind the issues. Grateful. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your voice and sharing your insights. That really does mean a lot. And listen, if you had to do so, please pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the Model Health Show. It really does mean a lot. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and topic of the day. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning journalist and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world-leading experts on human performance. He's the author, actually, of 11 best-selling books. And this includes The Art of Impossible, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Abundance, and again, several other titles. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes and translated into over 50 languages. He's appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Wall Street Journal, Time, Harvard Business Review, and more. And now he's here on the Model Health Show to talk about this remarkable science around flow state and also how this impacts our health and longevity. Let's dive into this conversation with the amazing Stephen Kotler. Stephen, so good to see you. Thank you so much for coming by. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to ask you about is what's happening in the human mind, the human brain, the human body when we are in a state of flow. What's actually going on? Scale of one to 10, how technical an answer do you want? I want to go full on, <laughs> balls <laughs> deep. All right. Um, so you know when you're sort of describing brain function, you want to know four things, really. You want to know neurochemistry and neuroelectricity. The neuroelectricity is not a term anybody uses, brain waves, right? But that's the two ways the brain talks to itself and to the body, right? It uses chemicals, uses electrical signals. So that's communication. And then the other things you want to know our neural anatomy, where in the brain something is taking place. And since, as I'm sure you know, very little in the brain happens totally like in one spot, right? It's usually a network effect. So really what you want to know about is functional connectivity and anatomical connectivity, the network effect of the brain. So networks, neural anatomy, neuroelectricity, neurochemistry, those are sort of the four things you want to sort of have some idea about if you're talking about what's going on in the brain. So during flow, right? Flow is an optimal state of consciousness. We feel our best. We perform our best. We see shifts at every one of these levels, big changes. Let's just start uh, with simple neural anatomy. In flow, 
the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that's right back here, right, right behind your forehead, very potent portion of the brain, right? Does executive control, long-term planning, logical decision-making, morality lives there, willpower lives there. This portion of the brain deactivates during flow. We used to think it was sort of like an across the board shutdown. I'll talk about why in a half a second. Now we know it's more sort of localized depending on what you're doing, right? So it's task localized, um, meaning different areas will shut down, not just across the boards. Though there's still some debate about that. Um, and it's, it's really about efficiency. So the first order of business for the brain and the body is save energy. So in flow, because the brain is a fixed energy budget and flow, one of its core characteristics is complete concentration on the task at hand. So the brain needs lots of energy to focus on the thing that's directly in front of you so you can get absorbed in it and lost in it and all that. It shuts down non-critical structures and it repurposes that energy for attention. Mm -hmm. A lot of what gets shut down is in the prefrontal cortex. So some flow is really strange effects. So when we're in a flow state, our sense of self disappears right? Self, self-consciousness, bodily awareness will disappear sometimes. And we have this experience all the time. So like low-grade flow states was known as microflow, really common at work. You go to work, you sit down to write a quick email to your colleague, and it's just supposed to take five minutes. You get so lost in what you're doing. You end up writing an essay, it takes an hour, and maybe your whole sense of self didn't disappear, but bodily awareness sure did. Because when you pop back in, you're like, oh crap, an hour's gone by. You have to go to the bathroom and you didn't notice, right? That happens to all of us all the time, right? That's really common. And time distorts in flow. Most commonly, just get so sucked into what you're doing that five hours pass by in like five minutes. Sometimes you get a freeze frame effect from me and you a car crash. So why are these really weird things happening in flow? Big portion of the reason is the prefrontal cortex is deactivating. Your sense of time, for example, calculated all over the prefrontal cortex, essentially a network effect. And as parts of the cortex shut down, there are other things that tilt time strains in the brain, but generally as parts of the cortex shut down, we lose the ability to separate past from present from future. We're plunged into what people talk about as the eternal present, the deep now. Um, and huge impact on performance, by the way. Big impact, right? Think about anxiety has a huge negative effect on performance. A little bit is okay. Prime's learning, prime focus doesn't, but too much really blocks performance and sort of crushes us. And um, most of our fears, most of our anxieties are not in the present moment. Unless you're in action sports, in combat sports, in a combat situation, fighting with your wife, you know, a handful of situations that we encounter in the real world. Most of our fears are stuff in the past or stuff in the future, right? It could happen, oh, it did happen, and I want it not to happen again. So if I remove past and future, stress hormones literally are flushed out of our system, and uh, joy, euphoria, all those things go way up. Same thing with your sense of self. Self is a network effect. It's a bunch of parts of the brain talking to each other. Most of them are in the prefrontal cortex, or some are deeper in the brain. And when those parts shut down, our sense of self, including the voice in our head, that nagging always on inner critic, gets really, really quiet. So that's what's going on neuroanatomically, more discrete levels. At a slightly larger level, you see a coordination between what's known as the frontal uh, control network, cognitive control, which allows you to stay focused on the task at hand, block out all those other distractions and that sort of stuff, and the goal-directed network, which is, so at a network level, those two things, um, they're either, to use technical words, 
metastable, which is Scott Kelso's argument, and I am sort of leaning in that direction. Though in a recent paper, we argued that it was synchronous activity because that's what showed up in the data, and my my colleague Richard Husky has has sort of found that. Though even he sort of doubt his data because we think it's a metastable system, but that's complexity dynamics and probably not a level you wanted to go to. So let's switch to neurochemistry now. Inflow, we see five of the most potent reward chemicals the body and brain can produce all flood our system at once and they're performance enhancers and they're pleasure chemicals and you're familiar with some of dopamine norepinephrine serotonin anandamide endorphins and um when we talk about flow underpinning happiness and well-being and meaning and purpose and joy and all that stuff these neural chemicals are a large reason why just to give you an idea of pleasure wise okay so when we fall in love which is one of the best feelings on earth that feeling of romantic love is dopamine and norepinephrine being cocktail that's two out of these five chemicals so imagine like falling in love plus a whole lot more pleasure that gets you flow so that's why when people you know rate their favorite experiences on earth, it's always a flow state. These neurochemicals are why. That's why we see this enormous surge in motivation. When McKinsey, the business consultancy, wanted to know how much more productive top executives were in flow than out of flow, they did a 10-year study, and the average response was 500% more productive, which is crazy, right? It means you can go to work on Monday in flow, take Tuesday through Friday off, and get as much done as your steady-state peers, which also tells you at the Flow Research Collective, my organization, right? We, we train a lot of companies that's one of the reasons why mm -hmm. right because companies are doing this more and more companies are doing this and you've got to stop and you're like well if company a does this and they're a thousand percent more productive than the competition because their employees are now being able to spend a couple days a week in flow versus the comp right it's this is becoming one of those factors in business where you you have to do it kind of thing um you also see these same neurochemicals impact learning and memory so quick shorthand how does learning and memory work in the brain more neurochemicals that showed up during experience, better chance it'll move from short-term holding into long-term storage. Another thing neurochemicals do, they tag experiences. Super important, save for later, right? Flow is this huge dump. Neurochemistry, which is why in studies done by the U.S. Defense Department, soldiers in flow learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. Huge spike in, in, in learning and memory. All that comes down to these these really big surge of neurochemicals. We also see stress hormones and stress chemicals flush out of our system as we move into flow. It resets the nervous system, uh, which has, you know, we're going to talk about peak performance aging as, as, as we go on in our country. So there are nine known causes of aging, and they're all linked to stress and inflammation. So one, flow is a very potent anti-aging medicine, maybe one of the most potent. One of the reasons is because it flushes these stress hormones out of our system and resets the nervous system. And that anything that does that, anything that resets the nervous system is essentially an anti-aging technology. So that's a look at kind of networks, neuron ions. The last thing we want to talk about is brain waves and mm. right, neural electricity. And so when you and I are in conversation, you're awake, alert, we're talking, your brain is producing a beta wave. It's a fast moving wave. It, awake and alert is what it basically means. Below, that's a slightly slower wave. That's an alpha wave. This is daydreaming mode. It's basically when the brain is inactive, its stuff is shut down. It's a slower wave. And then below that is theta. Theta is a much slower wave, tends to show up during REM sleep or sometimes during focused attention, which is why you see it so much in flow. Um, 
flow takes place on the borderline between alpha and theta. We don't stay there permanently. You're not living there. You Every time you make a decision and flow is a decision-making state, you'll bounce around. You'll go up to beta. You'll come. But the difference like between peak performers, when you look at what is the difference in the brain between peak performers and average people when they're, when they're doing something, one of it is average folks will go into a decision-making cycle. They'll, they'll go to beta or high beta or some of these like non-flowy brainwave states and they'll get stuck there. They'll stay there. Um, high beta is anxiety. So like your brain will start worrying about something and you'll just stay there. But the pros, they may start worrying about it, but they'll get their brain back to this alpha theta borderline. They can come back to flow. So I can go a lot deeper, but this is this is a lot deeper yeah. than I'll normally go on, on, on a podcast. I love it. This so, is wonderful. Right. You know, having this 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 is a a language for us to really start to well, we're yeah, and, and I mean, you're speaking the preaching to the choir. We emphasize the Flow Research Collective cognitive literacy, and it's super yes, important. Yes, understand. We want to perform at our best. Understand what's going on in our brain and exactly. our body when we perform. That language is power. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate, even, you know, physical literacy, you know, putting some of these practices for our bodies and kind of learning a certain language. But this all really leads to, for me, just even at the, the tail end of that, being able to access one of the greatest human capacities, which is the capacity for creativity. Right. And you just mentioned yeah, so bouncing create, up to like yeah, beta. So create, yeah, creativity spikes massively in flow. A lot of it is those neurochemicals. Yeah. So. Creativity is a combinatory process, always. It's the brain taking in novel information or you're internally generating a novel thought and it combines it with older ideas to produce something startling new. So all those neurochemicals surround information processing in the brain. You're gonna love the following sentence. <laughs> when we're in flow, um, we take in more information per second. So data acquisition goes up, pay more attention to that incoming information, so salience goes up we find faster connections between that incoming information and older ideas so pattern recognition goes up that's your creativity and we find faster and farther flung connections so divergent thinking outside the box thinking that also happens and finally you know in all the studies of creativity it's def creativity is defined as the creation of something novel and useful and the useful part means i it's not enough for me to have a neat idea that's not creativity I have to do something within the world, right? The action matters, and that requires risk-taking. And in flow, these same neurochemicals, especially dopamine, boost risk-taking. So literally, they surround the creative process. It's why creativity spikes are the highest in flow above anything else that's been measured 400 to 700%, depending on which aspect of creativity we're measuring or looking at. And that's work we did, worked on at Harvard, worked on at the University of Sydney, a couple other places. So. And as you pointed out, the brain waves, when you're down around alpha theta, those are really creative. Like alpha waves have long been correlated with creativity for a really long time. And so, yeah, flow is incredibly great for creativity. And I cut you off because I got all excited. Yeah, I love it. Listen, you know, in that same vein with creativity, it's one of the most efficacious ways to problem solve, you for know. Sure. Number one, and right now we've, we're dealing with an abundance of problems as a species, but we tend to hammer away at things being in that beta state, like that's problem, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to, you know, that kind of thing. It's a norepinephrine problem, actually. Uh -huh. So the part of our brains, the anterior cingulate cortex, very involved in flow, that if you're gripped, if you're freaked out, if you're scared, if the world today, and that's always, are you producing a lot of norepinephrine, which underpins anxiety, it 
the brain, when you're anxious, it wants logical solutions. Try to something that's worked a million times. Don't give me anything new. Give me the thing that's worked a million times. And when we're in a good mood, when we're not time stressed, when we're less fearful, that part of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, which finds links between weakly associated ideas or remotely associated ideas, outside the box thinking, it's fully active. So the more fearful we are, the less creative we are. This plays a big role in sort of peak performance aging um, where you really have to stay on top of anxiety levels uh, to, to really sort of exceed in the second half of your life, that's for sure. What about this phenomenon of people having their best ideas in a shower? So that, we have to go all the way back to this sort of Poincaré and Wallace, the foundation of creativity. They realized, uh, Poincaré was a mathematician in the late 1800s. Wallace uh, was a psychologist in like 1925. They came up with the idea that creativity is a cycle. It's a four-stage process. There's a loading phase. Um, then it's followed by an incubation phase, which is what happens in the shower, right? Where it ha your subconscious, your loading phase, you're just thinking about things consciously, right? And then you marinate, you pass the problem to the unconscious. And the reason the shower works, and this, so you can also, in flow, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. One of them is sometimes talked about as deep embodiment. It basically means when multiple senses are active at once, we're much more engaged in the present, right? This is why athletic activity is so, one of the reasons it's so flowy is because when you're doing something athletic, you're using all your senses. There's no time for a whole lot else, right? So in the shower, in the same way, you've got a lot of sensory information sort of coming in all over your system. So it tends to drive focus towards flow a little bit, but it's also this incubation phase. So you're just taking your mind off the problem your subconscious is chewing on it and then this this being you're being pushed a little bit towards flow and that's what we think is going on in the, with the good eyes in the shower that's so cool and i think that we could and this is what i love about your work is it's not even a matter of thinking it's a matter of we can create the conditions to stimulate or create much higher likelihood of reaching that flow state yeah i mean that's what we do with the flow research collective and just to put a, a, a point on so I'll talk about how we train it in a second, but the, let me just say this for everybody. Flow is, we're all biologically hardwired for flow, right? Built-in property of being human. We all come with peak performance built into us. But at the collective, we train tens of thousands of people every month. We, my point is we do it in 130 countries. Everybody from, you know, soccer moms and soccer dads to professional athletes and members of the U.S. Special Forces to companies like Facebook and Accenture and the San Francisco Police Department, blah, blah, blah huge wide assortment that's my point and we measure everything we're total data geeks on average we see a 70 to 80 percent boost in flow and it's not i mean yes our kung fu is very good we think i think we're the best in the world at this particular thing that said we're getting those results because this is so trainable because we're hardwired for this um so you know, I said earlier, flow states have triggers and there's a flow cycle. Like there's a creative cycle, there's a flow cycle. It actually maps onto the creative cycle very closely. And nobody knows, are you looking at the same thing or two different things? We can't, nobody's been able to figure that out yet. We don't know. But if you know the flow cycle, it's a map of the process, right? So where am I in this process? And if you know the triggers, what can I do to get more flow or to sustain the flow that I'm getting? You, those are the, that's the toolkit. And once you're armed with that toolkit, and a little bit of cognitive literacy, 
70 80% boost in flow is what's kind of, I think, available to most of us. That's mm -hmm. certainly what all our data says. That's scary good. I know, That's right? scary good. Scary and good. It's, again, it's we're addressing, I, I truly believe that whenever we are faced with a problem, whether it's personally or even as a species, the problem existing is automatically going to have a solution packaged with. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin. There's there's always a way. And then of course, there's this statement where there's a will, there's a way. I believe where there's a will, there's a thousand ways, 10,000 ways, but it's our ability to think differently a lot of times, but we handicap ourselves when we're trying to, as Einstein said, solve a problem from the same level of thinking that created the problem, right? And so having this come up right now, where we're dealing with some pretty serious issues as a species, you know, our collective demise, and also seeing this advent of, we just crossed 8 billion people on the planet recently, while at the same time, we have plummeting rates of fertility as a species. It's been going down about 1% every year for the past 50 years. And we'll put the study up for everybody. The Scientific American did a great job kind of encapsulating a bunch of different studies to, to lay it all out. And so with that said, paying attention to how long we can live and how long we can live healthfully is a big deal. And you saying today, you just blew my mind when you said that this is anti-aging technology and having the data to back that up, it is so awesome. And this is something, we got the practical stuff out here, go get your steps in, eat healthy foods, but also put on your list of to-dos, flow well, the, state. Yeah, well, the so and this is really what's at the center in our country, right? Is if you really look at the sort of the data on anti-aging and longevity and, and those sorts of things, um, the biggest levers, the biggest things that we have available to us are almost all psychological, Facts. right? Mindset has a huge impact on how long we live. Social connection, huge impact on how long we live. Regular access to feelings of mastery and control, which show up in flow, huge, hugely important to how long and how well we live. And I keep going it goes on and on feelings of purpose if you, yeah if you actually like i you know so peak performance aging in a single sentence right this is if you want to rock to you drop you want to regularly engage in challenging creative and social activities that demand dynamic dynamic just means all five categories of functional fitness strength stamina agility balance flexibility at once dynamic deliberate play and we can talk about what deliberate play means in a second and take place in novel outdoor environments. Nowhere in that sentence, that's those are all the big levers put together. Now, a bunch of those words are flow triggers. So flow comes baked into that. But nowhere in there did you hear a biohack? Did you hear a supplement? Did you hear a dietary suggestion? Like all the things, I'm not saying those things are bad. They're good too, right? But I have said that like most of the stuff that people do they're reaching for the wrong things first. They're, you know, not figuring out that the big, you know, the big levers are are elsewhere. The other one is leg strength, right? Leg strength is the single most important correlate for peak performance aging, for longevity, for maintaining brain function over time, for maintaining body function, and it's literally like thigh muscle mass. Um, so like, it's funny because people were talking about, oh, should we test Biden's cognitive function or all, all this stuff, right? Because we've got older. Okay. And I was like, well, really what you want the dude to do is squat. You want to know what his, his thighs can do. That's probably a better indicator.
That's amazing. I know. I know my son is over there. He's got some, you see those thighs? You know, those busting through the, through the pants over there. <laughs> but that's an indication again of, of robust cognitive function. And, you know, there's this really strange stereotype that, you know, the, the athletes or the jocks are not intelligent. The dumb jock. Right. We were, Ryan and I were just, Ryan's again off screen. Uh, uh, we were talking about this the other day. I, you know, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and that, I mean, it was, it was dumb jocks, right? It wasn't the research, the first research that linked brain performance to body stuff was the famous, it's the first major study. It's the study. So the traditional idea is about aging, right? The long, slow rot theory, all of our mental skills decline over time. All of our physical skills decline over time. There's nothing we can do to stop a slide. We now know that's totally not true, right? We now know that all those skills are actually use it or lose it skills. And if you keep training them, you can hold on to them, even extend them for far longer. So that showed up. One of the first big studies was the nun study of, uh, it was a study of, of nuns and they were looking at who develops Alzheimer's and why, and it was lifestyle factors and all that stuff. They were the first study that showed that exercise preserves cognitive function. And this was like 1995, 1996, I think. I have to go back into the physiology literature, but we were talking about, it. I think that's the study that actually was the first hole in the dumb jock myth. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe there was stuff that came back before we were talking about it. I was like, I think that's the, that's the one that sort of blew it up. And just to piggyback on that, we've got a study, this was conducted by researchers at Georgia Tech. Okay. And it revealed that strength training for as little as 20 minutes can improve long-term memory. And the researchers had study participants specifically train the legs for 20 minutes versus controls who did nothing. So how old were the participants to say? So these would be, I would imagine these would be college students, but two days later they had them to do an image recall test and the strength training test subjects outperformed the non-lifters by 10%, right? And so this, this the, uh, you know what spins off of this, it's really cool, not, not enough people are talking about it, is we're starting to get to the point that like, we're being able like that's strength training right and we know like physical stamina endurance training is good for certain things bad for others strength training for memory like it's we're getting really specific with these links is is I've, and there's still much work to be done and i'm hesitant to make this is this because i don't think we're at that level yet but this is definitely the where the research is and over the next five to ten years we're gonna have you're gonna go to the doctor and he's gonna say oh you're this is your issue, this is your issue, this is your issue. You're gonna like a combination of play these video games and do these exercises in the gym. And it's gonna be so unbelievably personalized and specific, it's gonna get really neat. Yeah, yeah, I hope that you're right. Me too. I hope that you're Me right. Too. Me too, I could be wrong. I've be been wrong before. So I wanna ask you, because even with that, when we are engaging in an activity like that, training legs, we're putting ourselves in a territory of certain outcomes. Might not be, again, the direct causative agent for the thing. And the same thing holds true if we're talking about practices that are going to put us in flow territory. So that's what I want to talk about now. Okay. What are some of those practices? So let's just start with what I call the peak performance basics, which are, um, and this is really like, there's 30 years of sort of positive psychology asking the questions. If you want to be at your best, what like what's baseline what like what what what's non-negotiable what do we have to have and and then we can get more advanced and talk about flow triggers and, and stuff like that but what's basic i won't linger on a lot of these because they're very obvious and i know you've covered a lot of them on, on the show so obviously 
sleep matters. Flow is a high energy state. So you need seven to eight hours a night regularly. Can you get into a flow state occasionally if you didn't get that amount of sleep? Yes, of course you can. Um, and that happens a lot. But general rule, if you want to make flow reliable and repeatable in your life, you want to make people got to sleep seven, eight hours a night. That's just what it is. Hydration and nutrition. Wait, really. we got to go back on this one. Okay. Because there's two things that will come up for me. Number one is we have a reduced activity in that prefrontal cortex when we're sleep deprived. So is that moving into that territory? But then it brings up the question of stress that would happen. With yeah, the- we're way too much norepinephrine. We're way too, there's yeah. way too much anxiety. Um, and yes, uh, yes, you see a do, a do see a reduction uh, of activity in the prefrontal cortex with sleeplessness, but it's the wrong band of, mm-hmm. if you're dealing with like neuroelectricity or brain waves, it's in the wrong spectral bands. It does the wrong thing. So yes, but not exactly. So um, sleep deprivation isn't yeah, a good well, way to hack well, your you, way in. I mean, you certainly can hack your consciousness and alter your consciousness. I mean, people have been using that in mystical systems forever right as sleep deprivation as one way of inducing altered states of consciousness um not flow you can you can alter your consciousness but it's it's not ideal for flow um and it is uh and seven eight hours is is pretty much a non-negotiable right like they've a lot of people tested other things i always love this is what i always tell people when i get pushback on that is i'm like look don't take my word for it there are iq tests that are all over the internet for free one day, when you've slept seven, eight hours, take an IQ test. Wait a couple weeks till you get four hours, five hours of sleep, one night, six hours, and take the same IQ test and just compare. You'll like, it'll, it'll, it's end of conversation, right? It's end of discussion. You're like, oh my God, I'm that much stupider when, when, when sleepy? Holy crap, you won't do it again. It sort of cures that, especially if you do anything where you need your brain for a living, right? You, you, just, you know, one of the most eye-opening studies for me this was years ago I came across this was published in the Lancet and they took physicians and they had them to do a simulated oh god operation yeah, yeah, yeah. and then they sleep deprived them for just 24 hours and had them come back and do the same simulated operation they, oh, wow. they made 20% more mistakes oh I'd love to see that doing study. the exact yeah, yeah. same thing yeah, yeah. and it took them 14% longer, longer as well to do oh this I really want to find that study that's so that's cool that's a great study yeah, yeah. um hydration nutrition matters and here's, so I, there's, when I talk about the peak performance basics, let me put a frame around it. There's three things on the physical side, three things on the mental side. On the physical side, to maintain the energy levels we need for peak performance, hydration, nutrition, um, sleep. And the third one is unusual to people, maintaining robust social connections. So we know the importance of social connections, psychological health. People don't understand there's an energy penalty for not maintaining robust social connections. So whenever you face a situation, X happens. Could be a threat, could be a problem, gotta run away, could be a challenge that I wanna rise towards. And whenever we, that happens, and that happens all day long, right? Um, the brain does a very quick calculation, threat or challenge, threat or challenge, right? Part of that calculation is, do you have friends? Do you have people who love you? Do you have backup? If you try this thing and fall down, is somebody gonna pick you up again, right? Because if there's nobody, this is a big problem and we gotta produce a load of energy to make sure you can tackle it and we need a bunch of fear and that takes even more energy and you do that over time and you no longer have the energy to get into flow, right? So maintaining, and you know, 
I'm an introvert. I don't, right? I mean, I can maintain robust social. I need to talk to my wife for like 20 minutes a day. My wife is an introvert too. So like we're both wired that way. But like we literally, like I can talk to, we can talk to each other for about 20 minutes a day and I can hang out my dogs and that's often enough for me, right? But to maintain robust, I, every day, no matter what, I make, I try to make one or two phone calls just out into the ether. You, you know, folks I haven't seen in a little while. Hey, how are you? I love you. What's going on? That sort of stuff. Because I, I want that energy level. So that's on the physical side. On the mental side, we've talked a bunch about how anxiety blocks flow. So there are three, three of the best long-term anti-anxiety strategies are a daily gratitude practice, regular exercise, or mindfulness. And what I tell people is, um, and we could talk about the science of why they all worked at, at reducing stress, but like high level, they all reduce stress. Uh, daily gratitude actually will make you more flow prone too. We did some work with Glenn Fox at USC, who's a great gratitude researcher, neuroscientist. And we found that people with regular gratitude practices are more flow prone. Um, mm. And But what I tell people is if it's a normal day, do one to manicure your nervous system, right? If it's a little stressful of a day, do two of those things. And so like during COVID, if you worked for the Flow Research Collective, because we're a peak performance organization, I want my people performing at their best, you had to do three a day. So if you worked for me during COVID, you were working out, meditating, and doing a daily gratitude practice, you didn't you know, didn't have a job, basically. I love it. This, this one right here, you just said, gratitude makes you more flow prone. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most remarkable statements that you've shared thus far. That's that's pretty powerful. It's cool. We're doing a really, uh, we're doing a neat study uh, sometime in the next two or three months where we're gonna look at gratitude as an acute intervention in a stressful situation. Um, we wanna test it against like breathing and a couple other, because nobody's ever looked at like, um, they look at gra they've looked at gratitude overall, like, you know, it will lower anxiety levels in your life. But we want to know, like, in an acute situation when we're forcing people to do something scary and dangerous, which is the better, you know, which is the best way to de-stress and, and drop into flow. We think gratitude is going to be pretty powerful. That's remarkable. We'll see. So this one, these three mental yeah, they, all, all so those got... things are just trying to lower the amount of norepinephrine in your system, really, and cortisol in your system, because too much, we'll talk about flow triggers in a second, because this was basics, and you said, how do I manicure flow? I'll give you a couple flow trigger examples, too, and this will make a little more sense. But the stress hormones block flow too much. You're just going to block flow, and you're going to block a lot of other things. Stress hormones block learning. They block creativity. They block flow. They slow down fast twitch muscle response as a general, unless you're in a full fight or flight mode, there's a general, they'll slow down fast twitch muscle response. They lessen the amount of uh, physical strength we can usually summon, right? Um, there's a big penalty for fear in the brain. Little bit is good, too much is, is a problem. So you gotta be constantly doing something to work with your nervous system. Now in acute situations, you know, in crisis modes, there's other techniques that are sort of better than those three for like, how do you sort of calm yourself down in the exact moment, but over the long term. And it, the one thing I want to say is if people are not used to exercising for cognitive function, for lowering anxiety levels, you want to exercise until 
there's a release of nitric oxide. That's what flushes the stress hormones out of your system. How do you know what, what nitric oxide has been released? It's a gaseous signaling molecule. It's in every cell in the body, basically. When your lungs open up about 20 minutes into a workout, 25 minutes, when your lungs open up and it starts to get quiet upstairs, that's nitrous oxide. It's now pushed the stress hormones out of your system. Your lungs have opened up, starting to get quiet upstairs. So you're exercising for calming down. You have to go until that happens, basically. So that's what you're looking for. If you're exercising for fitness or whatever, you know, you can get a high intensity workout in 10 minutes, but you may not get that, that shift. Yeah. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Few people know that regularly drinking coffee has been shown to help prevent cognitive decline and reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. This attribute referenced in the journal Practical Neurology is yet another reason why intelligent coffee consumption makes the list of best neuronutritious beverages. Another study featured in the journal Psychopharmacology uncovered that drinking coffee has some remarkable benefits on mental performance. The researchers found that intelligent coffee intake leads to improvements in alertness, improved reaction times, and enhanced performance on cognitive vigilance tasks and tasks that involve deep concentration. Now, why am I stressing intelligent coffee intake? This means acknowledging the true U-shaped curve of benefits and not going ham on caffeine. The data clearly shows that some coffee, a cup or two a day, and the accompanying caffeine is a great adjunct for improved mental performance. But going too far starts to lead to diminishing returns. So we wanna make sure that we're getting an optimal intake of coffee, and again, not going overboard. But also, coffee is best when it's not coming along with pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, fungicides, these chemical elements are clinically proven to destroy our microbiome terrain. So destroying the very microbiome that helps to regulate our metabolism, regulate our immune system, the list goes on and on. Obviously, we want to make sure that those things are not coming along with the high quality coffee that we're trying to get these benefits from. And also, what if we can up-level the longevity and neurological benefits of the coffee by combining it with another clinically proven nutrient source. Well, that's what I do every day when I have the organic coffee combined with the dual extracted medicinal mushrooms from Four Sigmatic. And if we're talking about optimal cognitive performance and the health of our brain, the protection of our brain, there are few nutrient sources like lion's mane medicinal mushroom that pack these kind of benefits. Researchers at the University of Malaya found that lion's mane has neuroprotective effects literally being able to help to defend the brain against even traumatic brain injuries. It just makes the brain more healthy and robust. So again, this combination of medicinal mushrooms plus organic high quality coffee is a match made in nutrient heaven. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash model. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model to get 10% off their incredible mushroom elixirs, mushroom hot cocos, and mushroom coffees. Again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. One of the things that you share with me before we even got rolling is, again, we can do all the things, but if we're hanging on to an, a barrier 
of entry into, into getting into a flow state, we're missing the point. And we were talking about how Focus victimhood yeah. can be one of those things yeah, that so this acts is a, this a barrier. Is just, yeah, this is just peak performance in general. This is the last thing that I should talk about is if you have an external locus of control. Locus of control is, do you think you have control over your world or do you think your world has control over you? Does life happen to you or do you get to steer a little bit? Internal locus of control, you get to steer. I'm in control of my life. I, maybe I'm not completely in control of my destiny, but I can shape it a lot and impact it. Victimhood is an external locus of control. The world happens to me and there's nothing I can do. From a performance standpoint, if you have an external locus of control, there is almost nothing I can do for you, period. You've given up your, you've given up all your power. People say that. What they don't realize is that's actual and talking about brain function too. If you have an external locus of control and you face a challenge, your brain will often not even like start producing the energy to even tackle the challenge because it knows, oh, this this is just something bad that happens to me and that's how life is and there's nothing I can do to fix it. So I'm not gonna waste the energy to bother trying. So yeah, the whole cult of trauma bonding that exists in the world today or out of the social justice movement, the whole cult of victimhood, right? I'm not saying the social justice movement is bad and I'm not saying that like people dealing with their traumas are bad. No, both of those things are great. But if you're giving up your power to be part of a community, which is what's happening when people are trauma bonding and whatever they're choosing, social relationships of, oh, we have this in common, we went through this hard thing and let's, right? Over personal, over power, over ability to change it. And that's dangerous, right? We want the connection because it will help us get over the trauma, right? We don't want to keep our shit buried inside us. We know that bad idea, but we have to present it and share it in a way that is not, we can't be giving away our power because it has a direct impact on, on the brain and on performance and truly on the quality of our life right? Those are the kinds of decisions you don't think about it a lot, but over years that adds up into a lot of dissatisfaction with your life, you, really, um, and a lot of problems. So thank you for bringing that up. Of course, of course, you know, as I was sharing, it's, it's one of the prevalent things, you know, with social media today where, again, we might think that we can you know, escape essentially into these portals. And if our filter is such that we're looking for problems, if we're looking for the holes in everything and looking for a way to keep on putting off and disempowering ourselves from being able to make the change that we want. For example, uh, what came up for me when you were talking about this is I had a great social media shares on Instagram at million, I think it had like 6 million views, which is pretty cool, of health psychologist Kelly McGonigal and she was sharing these insights about exercise, essentially sensitizing the brain to more pleasure, which is the, the other aspect, so making you more sensitive to pleasure, and of course, reducing pain, reducing stress, right? So it has this two-prong approach that's just recently discovered. And of course, 95% of the folks, and I, I rarely ever dabble in the comments, but it got so big, and every time I would go into my app, it's just like all comments for that video. And you know, 95% of people is like, I feel the exact same way. It's just, you know, it's kind of affirming their experience. But, you know, it's those people just like, you know what? I've did, I exercised before. I just don't agree with this at all. This doesn't make me feel any better, da, da, da. And yes, absolutely. This can be subjectively true for that person. And maybe 
that's going to hand, handicap them or handcuff them from finding the thing that does help them to access, right? So maybe they've been going to the gym and, you know, running on the treadmill. Maybe yeah, they're, to, I mean, they're probably you, exercising in the wrong way for how they're that's, wired. There's, there's ways this, to go in a path of discovery. Well, this is where the flow triggers come in handy, right? Because everybody's individual and there are triggers that drive us into flow. Everybody's, there's 26 that we've discovered. There's probably way more, but there's, that's what we've discovered. Knowing which, and they change over time. Right, like which ones are going to work for you now are probably going to be different than what might work next week and five years from now and that sorts of things. But knowing which triggers you're most susceptible to and, and, and work best with is a really good way to guide you towards, you know, exercise states um, where there's absorption. And if people are saying, I don't feel better, what they're really saying is I didn't work hard enough to get anandamide and endorphins, which are automatically released during exercise. And it most common endorphin in the brain is a hundred times more potent than medical morphine. So you're gonna feel better. Like that's just biology. It's automatic. So like all you're saying is, wow, this exercise was so boring, was so wrong for me. I couldn't get absorbed and I couldn't get lost and I couldn't stick with it long enough to get the the kind of neurochemical release. And there are, um, we've been doing some work um, with uh, some neuroscientists who study pain and we're looking pain in, in relationship to working out in the gym. And some people really like it and, and, and understand that like, you know, this is a good thing. Other people, this is a bad thing depending. And so depending on your orientation towards physical discomfort in the gym, get different levels of flow, get blocked out of flow, different performance, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's a lot of intricacy there and we're starting to peel it back a little bit. Of course, you know, and also we put exercise in this pithy box, you know, and you think about our ancestors didn't necessarily have uh, regimented exercise programs. You know, they were just living, they were training, they were, you know, doing things to, you know, keep the tribe alive. And today we do simulations of things, but I think a more overarching way to really even picture this is through the lens of play. And you said this word earlier, because that play a lot of times is going to involve what we deem to be exercise oh, as sure. well. And it's going to put us more in that territory of a flow state. Yeah, I, play is ma massively conducive to flow. Um, obviously, when animals play, you're just looking at pure flow, right? Um, in animals, uh, it's from a peak performance, peak performance aging perspective. I mean, we learn better when we play. I thought the, so the reason I gave you that formula earlier, right, that had deliberate play in it, it's, that's essentially a formula, among other things, for lifelong learning. You want to stave off cognitive decline. You want to preserve brain function, stave off Alzheimer's and dementia. What's the medicine? What works? Developing expertise and wisdom. This is why flow matters so much again. Um, so most of the diseases of aging, cognitive decline, they take place in the prefrontal cortex, which really powerful part of your brain from an evolutionary perspective, it's the newest portion of the brain which makes it the most vulnerable to shit going wrong. And so when we learn skills, expertise, or when we learn wisdom, emotional intelligence, sort of writ large, um, either of those, the results are really diffuse networks all across the prefrontal cortex. And the brain is really redundant. It doesn't ever figure out one way to do something. It figures out like 11 different ways to do something. So that's why there's so much, lifelong learning matters so much 
because you're developing expertise and wisdom and this is how what preserves brain function. So flow automatically, uh, for reasons we can talk about, uh, helps you develop expertise and wisdom. Um, so it's really good. Uh, one of the reasons it's an anti-aging medicine is, is this. Um, but that whole formula I gave you is for lifelong learning. And we learn better when we play. Deliberate play. So we've all heard about deliberate practice. Anders Ericsson's idea. 10,000 hours of do the same thing. Repetition with incremental advancement. Right? Do the same thing over and over and just advance it a little bit. And it turns out that's great for learning certain kind of skills. You want to become a classical violinist or, or mathematician or a couple things. This is the way you want to do it. That's the best way to learn. But in most other situations... Deliberate play outperforms deliberate practice. What is deliberate play? Repetition without repetition. And so I'm going to do the same thing I did before, and I'm going to improvise a little bit on top of it. And one, it's way more fun. And so you get more neurochemicals. That with deliberate practice, if you do the exact thing you're supposed to do, you'll get a little squirt of dopamine. A little squirt of dopamine, which is good. Feel good drug, but not a lot of it. If it's deliberate play... You get dopamine and endorphins, and you get a much bigger squirt of dopamine and a much bigger squirt of endorphins, and the more neurochemicals that show up, better chance things are going to move from short-term holding into long-term storage. Also, when you're playing, there's no shame. There's no self-consciousness. There's no embarrassment. There's no fear. All this shit that blocks learning and blocks performance is out of the picture. And when shame and self-conscious, those things, so all of those things live in the prefrontal cortex right and activate the prefrontal cortex which will block flow so deliberate play is way more flowy than deliberate practice as well and the thing i like the most about it is with deliberate practice there's only one right answer you do the thing you did before with get a little bit better right with deliberate play there's only one wrong answer you did the exact same thing you did before everything else is a right answer and everything else is a chance to learn because it's play, right? When we're going for deliberate practice and we do something wrong, we don't get there, we beat ourselves up. When we're playing, it's all information. We're just learning. We're just all the time. So all of these things, and you know, play is better for, I mean, we talk a lot about health and well-being and longevity and impact on the immune system and all those things. It's an incredibly powerful tool, and it's a tool that most adults stop doing, right? It, it tends mm -hmm. to go away over time, and sort of the exact opposite would be true. In fact, this is maybe the coolest thing. So in our country, I taught myself how to park ski in my 50s, right? And park skiing is a really acrobatic, dangerous discipline that involves doing a lot of jumps off, uh, tricks off jumps and things like that. There's a general thinking that if you haven't learned how to park ski over the age of 35, don't bother, right? It's, it's biologically impossible. By the time you're 45, you're crazy, and 50, you're just nuts. And I thought that was wrong. And I thought, you know, there's a bunch of science that said that was wrong. And clearly, I, you know, I tried to prove it in the book, and, and I think it did. But um, one of the reasons I thought it was wrong is you've heard about the motor learning window, right? If you're a little kid, learn gymnastics or ballet or a language or a musical instrument and that window slams shut almost completely by the time we're 20, 25. That's not actually true. Sorta true. There's some changes in the brain. Those things happen. But really what changes is how we learn. When we're kids, we learn by playing. Mm -hmm. 
right? When we're adults, we learn through work. And there's a very different thing going on in the brain. And it turns out that when you learn through playing, that the motor learning window is not as slammed shut as it appeared to be. So if we rekindle this learning system that we had as kids, we actually can reopen that motor learning window too. That reminds me of that great quote, uh, we don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop, stop playing. playing. Yeah, yeah. And this is a great segue into your new book, Nar Country, which we got to talk about the title, all right. first of all. But also, in the book, you share this statement, and it was really profound. You said that skiing is the ultimate life hack for you personally. Yeah, yeah. It's the ult you said it's the ultimate life hack for you. Why did you say that? So we were talking about this earlier. So the most precious resource most of us have is time, right? Some people could argue it's money, but um, often money is just a substitute for time, right? And what money really does is allows you to get stuff done faster one way or another. So time strikes me as the most sort of precious resource we have. And so I am always applying filters to my life to helping me make decisions, right? And I love these filters, one, because in crisis situations and difficult situations, um, I'm not logical. I'm not. I'm like everybody else, right? I'm not logical. I'm not linear. I want the quick fix, the fast solution, all that stuff. So I like to have rules in place that govern my behavior in kinds of those kinds of situations. So I know what to do, and I don't sort of do the wrong thing. One of the filters I apply is we do this in our in our in our training. We have a training coming, a performance aging training, and this is one of the first things we do in it. So we make people list their top 10 feelings on earth. What are the 10 things that make you feel the absolute best? Um, they could be activities, they could, you know, be whatever, and use that as a filter for how you spend your, if you have free time, right? Why would you waste free time on something that's like 17 or 27 on your list of like favorite things to do, right? First of all, so you start editing out like, these, these lesser pleasures in the favor of, oh, wow, these are the things that really make my life rich and meaningful and delightful and produce a lot of flow and all that stuff. And so skiing has always been my, it's my favorite activity on earth. Um, close second to like writing and, you know, hanging out with my wife and, and, and whatever, but literally like skiing and flow is the best I get to feel on the planet. And that's literally just the reality of it. Like you could have moral opinions about that or you can have a lot of judgments around that but just that's the flat truth of the matter one of the things i like about this list is oftentimes we have these like things that will make us say oh no this is my hanging out with my children or is my favorite right because like society wants us to say those things and you start probing under the hood of that one and you find out no that's actually in a lot of cases not true it's like item maybe on the top 10 list but it's not actually one two or three and you're sort of acting like it is because you think you should, but you're sort of going against your wiring in a weird way. And um, is that the best for you? Is that the best example to set for your kids? Are you being the best version of you for your kids? If you're so, those are interesting questions. And I don't, I don't have children, so I'm not going to answer them. I'll let people who have children can have opinions on that one. But it always, I always listen to that, and I'm like, are you sure? Because you know, like I have these questions a lot, you know, these conversations a lot with people and, you know, so, but, um, yeah, skiing is, has, has always been sort of my first filter. And what does that mean? That means like, if somebody comes to me with a thing, my brain says, well, is this going to help me ski more or less? Cause if it's going to help me ski less, it's probably a no. 
right? It's probably a no. Um, there are occasions when I deviate from that, but as a general rule, it's a no. And you know, there's a there's a handful of those. I have I basically only do six things in my life, and everything else is a no. Um, so you've taken control of your time. Yeah, very much so, as much as I possibly can. Yeah, and you've given. Here's the the wonderful thing about your book. I shared this with you already. Is that there's a story of discovery and a new form of skiing, which again, this is not my language. And even that I would think would be a barrier to discovery throughout the book, but it wasn't. It brought me right in, immediate interest. I'm trying to find out. You gave a statement that as you get older, the distance between your ass oh, yeah. and the emergency room gets a lot shorter. At least according to the voice in my head. Right, and <laughs> so that's the thing. It's like you're going past and, and battling with these mental barriers, but also the physical showing up part. And you share this, like the things you've been talking about is weaved into the book itself. And one of the most profound things that you talked about was something that you called multi-tool solutions, right? So being able to leverage your time by stacking things, right? Things that address two, maybe yeah, three things Yeah, multi-tool solutions, time. a single, uh, so in peak performance, also in peak performance aging, um, there's a, a bunch of stuff you want to do. Really, if you if you go through my book, or Muzzle, I talk about a little bit in here, there's about six or seven things you want to do every day. And I just, we talked about the peak performance basics, so you have an idea of what some of the, a lot of those things are. Um, and about six or seven things you want to do every week. Which is another way of saying, you know, peak performance is essentially a checklist, right? But it's every day, it's constantly showing up for it. So, there's a lot to do every day in both peak performance yep. and peak performance aging. So at the Flow Research Collective, the one comment I said, we train people all over the globe and tens of thousands of people and blah, blah, blah. They have one thing in common. They're all busy. Everybody we work with is busy. Everybody's busy. So we always look for these multi-tool solutions, a single solution that solves multiple problems at once. So really simple example is uh, if you're interested in peak performance, um, regular mindfulness practice really matters because one, a mindfulness practice lowers anxiety levels, which you have to do to be in flow. Two, flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So anything that helps us train up focus amplifies our ability to get into flow. So mindfulness, single, single problem, single tool, now it solves two problems. It actually solves a whole bunch more problems than just those two, but that's a really sort of simple example of a multi-tool solution. The one I talk about in the book for training, for uh, I used it to train for, for park skiing, but I think it's actually a phenomenal peak performance aging tool, is hiking with a weight vest. Because I, a, it's a single, and I did it because so to save time, I have dogs. I hike my dogs every day. It happens no matter what. So I didn't have, when I was gonna train for park skiing, right? I trained for almost a year. I was busy, right? I had a lot going on. So I had to find a way, I didn't, I didn't have time for, and I was already like going to the gym and doing yoga and around. So like, how am I gonna find time for more training? I'm already training. Um, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm hiking my dog an hour a day. Let's add a weight vest in. And that was just where it started. And it was, originally was, oh, this will help for leg strength. That was right, leg strength and stamina. 
And it turns out it does, but it turns out that it's one of the best core training tools I've ever used because it's on your upper torso. Every time you take a step, right, you're, hold, you're locking your core in. It also, because of that, it's doing balance and agility. And if you're sort of a little stretching at the front and back end, now you've got all five categories of functional fitness that need to be trained over time. The user loses skills, the core. Um, and you, one tool that's training all five things. And if you don't use a single tool, so the World Health Organization has very exact prescriptions for peak performance aging for exercise. We know exactly what we need. If you want to be at your best, you need 150 to 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity a week. You need two strength training days and three balance flexibility and agility days. Now, if you're taking your workout seriously, it's pretty hard to get through anything I just listed in less than 20 minutes, and usually they're about 40 minutes, right? So you're looking at two hours of workout time a day, five days a week, or you find a single tool that does multiple things at once, right? Um, and mm. now, now you're starting to cook. So those are really, I just think for time management, you know, multi-tool solutions, having filters, right, for what you're saying yes to and what you're saying no to, knowing sort of what are your core flow triggers, right, and which ones work sort of the best for you, um, and multi-tool solutions. And the other one is stack protocols. A stack protocol is when you can nestle a bunch of tools inside one another. So I use saunas, uh, infrared saunas for recovery. Really phenomenal recovery tool, but one of the reasons I use saunas for recovery is I can go into a sauna, I can bring my Theragun into the sauna so I can massage out my, you know, muscles in the sauna. I can meditate in the sauna and I can also read in the sauna. And for creativity, we find that you want to be reading 25 to 50 pages a day. This is a peak performance thing, uh, uh, minimum, usually in a book to load the pattern recognition system, to give your brain the fodder. You can't be creative if you don't, if you're not feeding the brain the fodder for creativity. And so reading is really the best, one of the best ways to do that. And so here's a single tool, a sauna, right? And you do an infrared sauna, there's slow, slow bakes, right? So you like 40 minutes and I can read my 25 pages. I can do 15 minutes of focused meditation and I can, you know, hit my muscles for five minutes with a Theragun and I'm in a sauna. So I've now, like, I got four things going on inside a single activity. That's a perfectly stacked protocol. So we look at, at the Flow Research Collective. These are the solutions we're always looking for. That's the stuff I talk about in our country. Um, I don't think, to, so I think you need to do that to perform at your best yeah. over time. Busyness is often the reason that people give for not doing the things that they really aspire to do. Well, yeah, I mean, you know I went right at that in the book. You saw that. <laughs> But in, in the book specifically, you mentioned that the highest performing people that you have the opportunity to study, they have this one thing in common. They're all busy. They're all busy. And so you've you've embedded these mental meals. The, it's, they're not even snacks throughout this ex exploration of this new form of skiing, which I want to get to next. And insights like that, right? And it's just like it stood out. And also filters, right? So being able to process or put our opportunities our request for our time through these mental filters. What are your filters? What are your top things that bring you the most joy in your life? And when you get requests to do things, understanding your time is valuable, especially as you inch towards that finish line of your lifespan, 
that time becomes something that you should probably consider a lot more of. And you actually did the math on how many more times well, you yeah, have to ski. So that was where all this, all this started in a weird way with this sort of calendar that you're talking about. So I, this is 10 years ago now, five years ago, seven years ago, um, I realized that, wow, when there's like five to 10 inches of powder, this is not a big dump, this is a medium-sized snow, um, those are my favorite days on the hill because it allows me to do exactly what I want to do. But those days show up, if I'm lucky, seven times a season. And so I was like, well, wait a minute. I was 50 years old, let's say, at the time I was started this, and average male life expectancy is 80. And if this is happening seven times a year and I'm going to live to be 80, that's 210 more times I get to do my favorite thing on the planet. That's not a particularly big number. That's really motivating, right? When you look at it that way and you're like, oh my God, this is my favorite thing. And let's say all my friends who are working on longevity technology and whatever, like they managed to add another 10 years to my life. So bonus, right? So now I get an additional 70. It's still 280 times to do the thing that is the most delicious, wonderful thing to me in the world. Again, not a very big number, right? And so I have a calendar where I just cross off the days. So I know, right? Be grateful, savor them. Don't don't miss one, right? This has really been about like, also like make sure that like, if these are the conditions, because sometimes when it snows a lot, driving to a ski area is terrifying. Like you're driving through a blizzard over like mountain roads, it's gnarly. And so there's extra, oh shit, I gotta drive through this stuff to get there. And oh, I've got work stuff and, and whatever. And oh, I can go tomorrow and there'll be some left. No, 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 no. You've got 200 left of these days in your life. You don't waste one. Yeah, yeah, oh, so powerful. Now this brings us to the title. Can you no, talk about what the title means and also what can people expect in this book? Yeah, so um, the book is about peak performance aging. And I, so one thing, aging is a fact of life, right? Old is a mindset is one thing I wanna point out. The second thing is that like a lot of people hear the word old, hear the word aging and um, if they're over 50, they've got no problem. They're already like, they, they, they've sort of started to come to terms a little bit with, with those words. But if they're under 50, a lot of people are like, oh no, no, those, those, those words don't apply to me. I, I, like, I don't even want to think about that. I'm shutting that off, that sort of thing. And the thing I want to tell you is maybe, I mean, maybe you want to do that, but one of the things this talk, the book talks about is that peak performance aging starts young, right? There's stuff you want to do in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s. And this is like, for quality of life over time, for, for, for health and wellness and longevity. But like, there's a, there's a lot to it. And it's not something that just starts over 40 or over 50. Um, the work seems to start a little earlier, but in our country, so NAR is action sports slang. It's short for gnarly. And uh, that expert athletes, as colorful as the language is, it's a technical language and it means very specific things. And action sport athletes are trying to stay alive and out of the hospital in dangerous situations. So these words really have precise meanings. And NAR is actually described as a, any environment that is high in perceived risk and high in actual risk, right? So I think it's dangerous and it actually really is dangerous. 
that turns out and country is obviously any landscape or territory or whatever it turns out it's a really phenomenal description of our later years high in perceived risk high in actual risk and it turns out once you start digging under the hood of peak performance aging and what's going on it's a phenomenal description of the gritty mindset it takes to thrive in the mm -hmm. second half of our life so that's where the title comes from and uh I think it's appropriate, especially because it's an action, a little bit of an action sports book. And what are you taking people through in this book? So, as you pointed out, the book tracks my attempt to learn how to park ski at age 53 is when the quest starts. What is park skiing? Park versus... skiing is the discipline in skiing. So, skiing, the way most people think about it, it's like speed skating, right? It's a you stay in contact with the surface of the earth, you move in one direction, you move down the mountain, and like. Park skiing is like figure skating. It takes place above the surface of the earth. It involves doing tricks and spins and flips and wall rides and rail rides and riding on boxes, and riding on surfaces with your skis. And it's super dangerous. Not super dangerous. It's dangerous. It's very acrobatic. And there's like 11 or 12 different biological reasons that it's supposed to be impossible, as I said, for anybody much over the age of 40 to learn it. And I... There was a bunch of stuff in like directly grew out of flow. This work just came right. I mean, it's not like I stumbled into peak performance aging. It grew right out of my work in flow. And um, so there was a bunch of stuff in flow science that said, hey, wait a minute, this stuff is not true. And a bunch of other things from like network neuroscience and body cognition, a couple other whiz-bang fields. I was like, if this shit is true, I should be able to onboard really difficult, challenging skills, even in my 50s, and anybody should be able to do it. Um, and I decided to put it to the test. And park skiing was a really, I'm a skier. I was an expert skier, but I'd never been in a train park in my life. I knew no tricks. Well, I had a couple of like retro cool tricks from back when I was like 16 years old, really basic ski tricks, but nobody even throws those tricks anymore because that's 40 years ago. Those tricks are not even cool. Um, so it was just a really great way to test mm -hmm. these ideas. And what you're going to get in this book, there's two things. But the first thing, and the one of the reasons, so it's as you know, the book's sort of written like a diary, right? It goes, it goes almost day by day. It's not really, uh, but it, for the entire period of the experiment. And the, why is that? In peak performance, like if you want more flow in your life, which is the heart of peak performance, I can tell you these are the flow triggers, the twenty six, and this is how they work. And I can tell you this is the flow cycle, the map of the process, and this is where you are, and. That's all you need, plus the peak performance basics, a couple other ideas to be dangerous. And that answer is incredibly not satisfying to most people because they really want to know about the application, right? Like, okay, but what happens when I show up at work and, you know, I've been sick for two weeks and my boss is in a rage because I haven't been around for two weeks and my knee hurts or, you know, or I show up and I work in a really, really good mood and then like this bad thing happens and it derails me and I have to get into flow from, the... that's what the book gives you is like a daily recipe. These are, this is where I'm starting. This is the challenge I'm facing. The goal is to get into flow and to use flow to kind of amplify learning and park skiing. So like we, you have a daily recipe for flow with these different applications, which is a thing that, um, the folks we are lucky enough to train at the Flow Research Collective have been want people have been asking for years. Like my fans have wanted this. Um, people we train have wanted this. There's been a really big demand, and nobody's. It's a really hard thing to do. Not from a anybody could do this from a writing standpoint, making it enjoyable for a reader and still useful. 
is really, it's actually, a, it's very hard. This is one of those technical, but you would never know it from reading it because the book's a ton of fun. It reads like an adventure story. It's one of those technical books I've ever written for that reason because I wanted to do this in a way that was engaging and fun and, yeah. you know, memorable um, and nobody had ever really done it. Jim Fix at the, the his book on running, uh, the something book on running, I can't remember the name of Jim's book, uh, does it in the last chapter. And my editor was a, he was a runner and it was a huge Jim Fix fan. And he was the one who, like when I started first playing with it, he was like, oh, you're doing that thing Jim did, but Jim only pulled it off for a chapter. Mm -hmm. You know, we started talking about, well, okay, how can we, how can I do this for a book? How can we sustain this and not bore the shit out of readers and everything else? So one, you're going to get a look at the basics of peak performance aging, good overview of very cutting edge field, right? Just emerging now. Um, two, you're going to get a deep look at like recipes for flow. These are the flow triggers this is how it works in this situation, this situation, this situation. And the other thing you're going to get is probably you're going to laugh a lot because I, I tried to make it a funny book. I hope it's a funny book. I mean, it's the, the distance between your ass and the emergency room, <laughs> you know, was funny as hell to me. Good. You know, and so just to be able, it's very, it's masterful. You know, the Thank writing you. is masterful. You clearly have been doing this for a long time at a high level to imbue those two things together because that's what was so fascinating to me and why I was sharing this with my wife, you know, just in conversation. I was like, babe, you know, I know you think this is a book about skiing. Well, that was the he, other thing is like, know? I, you know, the number of park skiers in the world, like if there's a half a million of us, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's a pretty damn small community. And I like... If this is just a book about skiing, there aren't enough readers in the world for, yeah. you know what I mean? So I was hoping, and I think I did it, I don't know, but there's, you know, I, I mean, growing up, I read all kinds of books about professional football, professional, but like, these are not sports I play, right? And I'm never gonna, so like, I read a bunch of books about stuff I didn't plan, I loved them. And I was thinking about like the, that barefoot running book that everybody read, mm -hmm. right? how many of us run through canyons barefoot, right? Like, so I was thinking about it that way. I was like, well, there've been a whole bunch of books in the, this community um, where people have read about activities outside stuff they're doing because it, it's been a good metaphor. So that's what I hope I did, right? If this thing is just for skiers, I definitely did not do my job. Well, this is, again, bringing about very practical things too for us to immediately apply, immediately apply. already. This concept of having these filters changed my life like oh, seriously so great That's and great. in addition to that if you could again i know there's 26 triggers oh no let's talk about a couple if of you them. could talk yeah, about a couple let's of talk these about a couple of i wanted triggers. yeah i wanted to so um flow follows focus only shows when our attention is right here right now all the triggers work by driving attention into the present moment now neurobiologically one of three different things is going on or some combination we focus attention when we're driving dopamine into our system norepinephrine into our system a little bit too much blocks it or when we lower cognitive load which is all the crap you're thinking about at any one time if i lower cognitive load your brain will immediately repurpose that energy for paying attention to the task at hand so that's what all the triggers do most of them work by driving dopamine into our system there's a bunch of different triggers that work this way and let's just start there so novelty is a flow trigger because when we encounter anything novel it would pay attention to it. That's dopamine, right? Risk, physical risk, but also emotional risk, social risk, psychological risk, intellectual risk, spiritual risk, also flow triggers. Um, 
complexity, when we encounter complexity. So you look up at a night sky and you, you see a billion stars and you realize that most of those stars you're actually looking at are galaxies and you're looking back in time and you're just overwhelmed by the perceptual vastness of it all. That's complexity. And um, again, pushes dopamine into our system. Uh, unpredictability, when unpredictable stuff happens, pushes dopamine into our system. Creativity is a flow trigger. Not really creativity per se, it's pattern recognition. When we link ideas together, that pushes dopamine into our system. We all know this. If you've ever done a crossword puzzle with Sudoku, you get an answer right, that little rush of pleasure you get afterwards, that's dopamine. So all of these are flow triggers. Um, all of them work incredibly well. The most important of flows triggers um, is what's known as the challenge skills balance, which is the idea that flow follows focus and we pay most attention to the task at hand, whatever we're doing, when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. If I were to say that emotionally, I'd say flow sort of sits on this midpoint between boredom, there's not enough stimulation here, I'm not paying any attention, and anxiety, whoa, way too much stimulation, I can't stop paying attention. In between is this sweet spot. If you speak physiology, it's the Erbs-Dobson curve. If you speak flow, it's the flow channel, depending on what your science background is. But what's interesting about that and what's cool about it is um, it's the progression ladder, right? And when you're constantly pushing on your skills, you're using your skills to the utmost, you're a little outside your comfort zone. So you want to stay in that sweet spot. You better get comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where that sweet spot lives, um, first of all. But uh, what it means is that on the other side of a flow state, because we're using our skills to the utmost, we're growing, we're learning, we're more complex, we're more adaptable, and we're actually wiser. Flow automatically increases wisdom and empathy um, and these skills as well. So you're getting sort of the whole package and because there's a global release of nitric oxide on the front end of flow, which makes it an anti-aging technology because it's lowering stress and because you're building up expertise and wisdom, so you're fighting off cognitive decline and dementia on the back end, all these things make it partially an anti-aging technology. Um, I can go, I, there's one more thing I can add if you want me to round out the anti-aging technology thing or we can go back into the flow trigger. Uh, yeah. Okay, so the other thing you need to know about flow as an anti-aging technology is whenever we produce really, po really positive, powerful emotions have health benefits. So the most powerful positive emotions that human can encounter love connection a sense of control we love being in control and a sense of mastery and flow because it advances our skills you're getting mastery flow states have one of the things we get is it gives us a feeling of control it's one of the how do you define flow how do you know if you're in a flow state one of the things you have is this feeling of oh wow i can control things i can't normally control from the outside i look in i see you in a flow state you look like you're performing at your best that's not what it feels like on the inside. Maybe it feels a little bit, but what it really feels like is, oh shit, I can control things mm -hmm. that I can't normally control, right? This could be me as a writer. My words are doing things like a six in the morning on a Tuesday that they don't normally do. It could be a basketball player and something that the hoop looks as big as a hula hoop and they can't miss, right? You decide that's a sense of control. When we feel that, that boosts the production of T cells, which boosts the immune system, and natural killer cells, which target sick cells and tumors. So... When we're in flow, 
Well, and all the neurochemicals that show up and flow that I mentioned, they also boost the immune system. So you're boosting the immune system, you're boosting the production of T cells, you're boosting the production of natural killer cells, you're lowering stress levels, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it makes flow a really potent anti-aging medicine. And obviously flow underpins happiness and well-being and meaning and purpose. And those things really matter and they definitely matter over time, right? Like you're a lot more willing to engage in frivolous exploratory activities when you're younger as you age, that clock comes in and you're like, oh no, I don't want to waste time on less meaningful activities. And I mean, for a lot of us that starts to happen, I mean, not in our 50s or 60s, it happens in our 20, late 20s and 30s, right? But flow really underpins all that stuff. So really, really potent. But to get more flow, this challenge skills balance is really, so that's, uh, again, a, one of the things you see in our country is how to constantly be pushing on the challenge skills balance and a little bit and how to use a lot of these different flow triggers in different situations and you know when to call them on them and when when not to and, and sure it's working for me on the ski hill but it will work for you in a work environment in a business environment in your interpersonal relationship wherever you want to apply this stuff it'll work i've just used skiing as an example because i've had i've got expert level skills so i know what the fuck i'm talking about right <laughs> yeah. like that was the other thing is that well, this is the other reason nobody's really written this book is you actually need this kind of weird challenge where i went from i would i've expert ski skills but no skills in park skiing which is an adjacent activity so it allowed me i know what i'm talking about in skiing and i just so i could apply it to learning from absolute beginner forward um i found i thought that was really helpful and you also have the mastery of writing and communicating this. You know what I mean? So it's a pretty dangerous combination. I'm not going to say this is going to happen, but the fact that you created this as a readable trigger for a flow state, in a sense, because it is novel. You know, there's so many different things going oh, it's on. It's a flowy it, book to read. It's a flowy, it's a flowy book, book to read. Yeah, yeah. By the there way, this you is, go. You're, yeah, you're not the first. So uh, me, I just sent me a high Godfather Flow Psychology. It's funny because flow is really associated with like athletics a lot and art artistry. And that's often like that's my fault and Mihai Chick sent me high's fault because we liked writing about sport examples and art examples. And it turns out like flow shows up everywhere. In fact, mm. Chick sent me high pointed out years ago in the seventies, the most common flow state on earth is reading. It's the most mm. common flow state on earth. Amazing. Second most common flow state on earth, two middle managers at work lost in conversation. Interesting. Right? Like interpersonal flow when you get in, you and your friends start talking and you get so sucked into what you're doing, a couple hours go by. But if you think about inter, that, those conversations at work, well, there's risk baked into them because there's always money involved and a little bit of pressure. And so you got a bunch of those flow triggers sort of baked into those conversations. And that's so reading and, and, and conversations at work tend to be the places, at least micro flow, the low grade version of the state, show up the most. Well, we got to get people to pick up this flowy book, NAR Country, right now. Where can people pick up the book and also just get more, get more. into yeah, this yeah. information? Yeah, yeah. So um, the book's available anywhere. Books are sold. You can get it from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Support your local independent bookstore if you can. Um, if, you, uh, if you're interested in learning more about flow, flow training, you want to work with the Flow Research Collective, danger, cheesy URL ahead, but it sticks in your brain getmoreflow.com is where to go. 
you can go there. You can sign up for a, like a free hour long uh, coaching call with any of my coaches. So they'll just literally get on the phone with you. They'll talk to you about where you are in your life, the stuff we do. Maybe it's a fit. Maybe it's not a fit. There's, it's not high pressure at all. We don't like people love these coaching calls. I'm not trying to put you into like a shitty marketing situation. In fact, if that happens to you, you let me know and I'll fire the person who did it. <laughs> um, but uh uh, stephencollar.com is me flowresearchcollective.com is that organization and there's a website for, for narcountry.com and uh, the thing that's fun on the website I just want to say is so we developed a whole protocol right to teach myself to how to park ski and, and it worked for me uh, it worked for Ryan who's sitting off screen here who's my ski partner um, he we, both of us like got farther faster than we've ever gone before which was amazing but that's not that's a pilot study it's a very small pilot study so we came back the following year we re-ran the study with 17 older adults ages uh 29 to 68 and if you go to narcountry.com we had a national geographic uh photographer filmmaker follow us around we filmed everything so you can see a video of you know a bunch of people who had then the difference with them and one of the things that was really exciting about it is uh most of them were intermediates so they weren't even like expert level you know they they came in as intermediates and we still got them zero to 60 and it's not that park skiing is a great actually peak performance aging tool action sports are really good for peak performance aging because they're dynamic motion they check all those boxes they they, they hit all the things that one sentence i gave you earlier action sports tend to fit in that box um a bunch of other sports do do as well but action sports sit really nicely uh in that box but um i do think this kind of nar style mission where i had unfinished business in skiing right so i had extra motivation on top of like you know i had my powder calendar i had you know stuff from my childhood to talk a little bit about that in the book there was a lot of motivation going in for park skiing. It was a really good activity, but I think what you 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 want to create it, you want to find this NARA style activity where it'll take your like traditional mindset around aging, right? This whatever ideas you have and just explode the possibility space, right? That was the that was the real thing that was amazing to me is like I had a really good like so portents mindset, positive mindset towards aging. I'm thrilled with the, what's ahead of me in my life leads to an additional seven and a half to eight years of healthy longevity. It's a huge mm -hmm. lever. And it, being exposed to negative stereotypes of aging or having it, right? So they've looked at uh, ageism is the most common stereotype in the world. And they've looked at the impact of, of ageism. And if you're exposed to negative stereotypes around aging in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, by the time you get to your 60s, if you internalize them, you're going to show 30% greater memory deficits than people who are not exposed to negative stereotypes around aging and have a positive mindset towards aging. So there's a bunch in the book about how do you change your mindset, and there's a bunch of different techniques, but here's the truth. Mindsets are really freaking hard to change. We hear a lot about, oh, you need a growth mindset, and you need this and this, and people throw it around in, in positive psychology and all this stuff as if changing your mindset was like changing your underwear, and it's just not. And there are stuff you can do. you got to sort of police your language. Mindfulness helps. But I find that, like, a NAR style quest, like, once I started learning Nose Butter 360s, some of these other more complicated tricks, whatever I thought might have been possible for me in the second half of my life, it exploded, right? Because suddenly there was a whole lot. I was like, oh, my God. Because if this is possible, 
And this is possible. And like, as you noticed, I learned a lot of that stuff really fast, right? That was the other thing, like our peak performance aging formula works so well that like, I thought it was gonna take me five years. It took me a season to onboard these skills. It was remarkably fast. And once I started, you know, halfway through the season, I was like, oh my God. What, and I had, I thought I had a really positive mindset towards aging and what was ahead of me in the second half of my life, but I had to totally revisit what might be possible in the face of my own success. That's why this kind of narcissist, I mean, you don't have to learn how to park ski, but you should pick a challenge yeah. that will explode your, whatever your mindset is. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to stay connected and learn from people like you who are doing these things and expressing what's possible that's one of the other things is having healthy examples or models of what's possible for us, you know, moving forward and really changing the culture around aging, aging healthfully, and just really getting the most out of this life. And so everybody pick up a copy of NAR Country and make sure that you are following. Also, are you on social? Yeah, Stephen Kotler on Instagram. Stephen Kotler on Instagram. And their website again was? Getmoreflow.com. Uh, if you want to check out our trainings, flowresearchcollective.com, stephencotler.com. There's a NAR Country website, narcountry.com. Um, and you can find me on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram. Boom. Stephen Kotler, thank you so much for your brilliance and putting this wonderful flowy book together for us. I thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, sir. Great hanging out. Awesome. Stephen Kotler, everybody. Some of the ingredients in the longevity recipe include right nutrition, smart exercise and movement, great sleep quality, and a few other tasty morsels. But here's the thing, the biggest leverage point to be able to access all of those things, to put them on automatic, is a shift in our psychology. As a matter of fact, potentially the biggest leverage is creating conditions where we can access more time in states of flow. Now, this isn't just me in my hypothesis, this is according to some of the latest science. And so really taking this information in, really starting to think about this and really starting to look towards what is for me that thing in my life that helps me to access more joy, that helps me to access more of a flow state so that the other things in my life become about stacking conditions to achieve that flow state. One of the things that Stephen and I talked about off camera is once we get into that state of flow, in addition to that, we want to make it more of a regular thing. We want to make it more of a regular thing that we access, but we have to recover. All right, being in flow, actually, if you're if you're trying to live in it, which is virtually impossible, but if you're accessing it and you're going too far, you just, you realize that you're in flow and you keep on trying to run everything into the ground, you're going to shift your body over into a state of stress. And so we need to recover, right? So this is where our right nutrition our sleep behaviors, our sleep hygiene, our movement practices, really engaging and investing in our relationships are such an important part of the recipe for recovery to then lead us into a state of more flow. So it all really feeds into each other. So I think this is a really fascinating topic. And if you do as well, please share this out with the people that you care about. You can share this out on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode and tag me. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram and tag Stephen Collar as well. And let him know. Share your voice with him. And I'm going to make sure that he's going to be checking his DMs when this episode comes out as well. So really share your voice over there on social media. And of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app. 
that you are listening on. We've got some epic masterclasses and world-class guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.